I'm attorney Mary Whiteside, and this is May It Displease the Court. If you look at police brutality and think the legal system is broken, you need to hear this interview with civil rights attorney Alec Karakatsanis because he completely changed my mind. This episode is an interview Professor Lee Pierce and I did with Alec about his book, Usual Cruelty, The Complicity of Lawyers in the Criminal Justice System for the New Books Network podcast series. And introducing our new theme song, Poor Man's Pain by Danielle Ponder. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of New Books Network Podcast. My name is Dr. Lee Pierce, and I'm your host today, they, she pronouns, professor of rhetoric in New York. I'm excited to be welcoming two guests to the show today. The first is our author, Alec Karak-Kitsanis, author of Usual Cruelty, The Complicity of Lawyers in the Criminal Justice System. Karakitsanis is troubled by how the legal system works when it is trying to punish people. The bail system, for example, is meant to ensure that people return for court dates, but it has morphed into a way to lock up poor people who have not been convicted of anything. Uh, He's so concerned about this that he has personally sued court systems across the country, resulting in literally tens of thousands of people being released from jail when their money bail was found to be unconstitutional. Uh, Karakitsanis doesn't think People who have gone to law school, passed the bar, and sworn to uphold the Constitution should be complicit in the mass caging of human beings and everyday brutality inflicted disproportionately on the bodies and minds of poor people and people of color, and for which the legal system has never offered sufficient justification. And we also are bringing to the to the mic today someone who has joined us before, appellate attorney Mary Whiteside. Mary, would you like to say hello to everyone before we introduce Alec? Sure. Hello, everyone. My name is Mary Whiteside. I am an appellate attorney. I primarily handle assigned cases. I've mostly been a public defender. And uh, I started another podcast called May It Displease the Court. And I was so excited about this book that I asked if I could please come on the New Books Network interview because it is just really revolutionary. And I think that you all need to hear it. So with that, I would like to bring on Alec to talk about his book, Usual Cruelty. Hi, both of you. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. Wonderful. So it's, again, the book was fabulous. I think it's an absolutely must read for anybody interested, even in like anywhere ancillary related to the subtopics introduced in the title. Do you want to say more about the big themes, the work you're doing, what led you to write the book? I mean, just any, anything that you think is really um, poignant or notable for people who maybe haven't read it yet. Yeah, I started thinking about writing the book several years ago as I was working in courtroom after courtroom, jail after jail all over the country. Um, I had started my career as a public defender representing people who were too poor to afford an attorney in Alabama and then moved to be a public defender in Washington, D.C. Um, and then for the last seven years have been doing big impact civil rights cases on behalf of human beings confined to jail cells all over the country. Um, because they can't afford to pay cash bail, because they're jailed, um, because they can't afford to pay fines and fees, um, suing police and judges and prosecutors and sheriffs all over the country for various forms of of corruption in the criminal legal system. And as I've been doing that work all over the country, several things really struck me as, as profoundly important and really missing from the discussion about how these systems function. Um, you know, one of those things was just how uh, cruel the system is every single day. So many of the people that work in the system have become so desensitized to its everyday brutality that they accept things every single day. Not only do they accept them, but they tolerate them, rationalize them, even justify them, even call them justice. And these are things that really should shock them to the core. And, and so I, I wanted to try to describe that for people that are coming into the legal system, for younger people, to lift up the stories of people who've been through the system and directly experienced it pain and trauma that it inflicts on people and their children and their families. Um, but I also wanted to link the everyday brutality of the system to aspects of our society that involve profiteering 
and sort of the the ways in which elites in our society actually um, have constructed and designed the system to inflict this pain and to accomplish this everyday brutality because you know we are living in a society that cages people at unprecedented rates you know five times our own historical average five to ten times other comparable countries we cage black people at a rate six times that of South Africa at the height of apartheid and as you're working in this legal system all over the country, challenging it, filing civil rights cases, um, working with people who are in jails and prisons around the country. It became really clear that many people just don't understand how this punishment bureaucracy works. And I wanted to try to take some of the stories and examples that I've seen and contribute to a, a deeper understanding of exactly why the system works the way that it does. And, and so I begin the book with the story of my client, uh, Charnel Mitchell. And I, I met Charnel. I, I had just quit my job as a public defender. I'd gotten a grant from Harvard Law School to start an organization to challenge uh, these systemic injustices in the legal system. And I flew back to Alabama and I rented a car and I was driving from courtroom to courtroom and jail to jail. And I was just interviewing people and their families as they came in and out of court and going up to the jail, interviewing people. And um, I got to, to the courtroom, the local courtroom in Montgomery, Alabama, one winter morning. And I, when I got into the courtroom, there were 67 people in jail garb and, and shackles. All of them were black. And as I started watching the proceedings, it became very clear to me, not one of them was charged with a crime. They were all there because they owed debts to the city from old tickets that they couldn't pay. And you know, for reasons I won't get into in, in this recorded podcast, I was actually removed from the courtroom and asked to leave. Um, <laughs> apparently, and Mary, you'll, you'll know this from your appellate work, you're not allowed to make objections from the pews of a courtroom if you're not a practicing lawyer in that state, apparently. I learned that the hard way. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, right. Right. You have to be admitted. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I was just in my like hooded sweatshirt in the back of the room making objections, and I don't think the judge liked it. Um, but it was- <laughs> I love it. <laughs> that is so bold of you. I love it. Well, you know, one by one, people are coming up and, and saying, Your Honor, I'm, I'm a single mother of four children. One of my children has a disability. Please don't lock me up. Or, Your Honor, I'm a homeless veteran. I, I don't have the money. Or, Your Honor, I, I was addicted to drugs, and that's why I couldn't pay the tickets. Please don't put me back in the jail cell. And one by one, the court would scream at them and say, Pay me a certain number of dollars and go back to jail. And when I was removed from the courtroom, I just went next door and and as in so many cities across this country, the jail in Montgomery is both uh, metaphorically and physically connected to the courtroom. And I started interviewing the people that I'd seen in court, and I met Charnel. She showed me her court document, and her court document said, pay us $2,807 or do 59 days in jail. And Charnel explained to me that uh, in the city of Montgomery, um, if you couldn't afford to pay your debts, you could, quote unquote, sit out your debts at $50 a day. And that's why she was supposed to do 59 days to make up for her $2,800. She had been sitting on on her couch with her one-year-old child on her lap and her four-year-old child next to her. And and the police raided her home and took her away from her two young children, put her in metal chains and put her into a jail cell. And she had no idea where her children were. Imagine being separated from your young babies as a mother. My kids are exactly that same age. And that is the biggest nightmare I could possibly imagine. It's horrific. and. And by the time she was describing this to me, she'd been away from her kids for a couple of weeks. She didn't know whether they were in in the possession of a family member or whether the government took them and put them somewhere, whether the police left them alone in the house. You know, imagine all the fears you would have. So she turned over her court document and on the back of it, one of the guards had given her a pencil and she'd been writing down each day, 50, 50, 50, and then subtracting them from $2,800 on the right-hand column and just trying to figure out when she... And some of the days she was writing 75. And I asked her, why are you writing 75 some days? I thought you only got $50 credit. She said, well, if you agree to be a janitor for the city and to clean the feces and the blood and the mucus and the mold from the floors and the walls of the jails. And reminder, you know, like many jails around the country, all of the women were sleeping on top of each other on the floor next to the toilets. And there, and there weren't any sort of feminine hygiene products. And there weren't, um, there wasn't soap, there wasn't toothpaste. So these are, these allowed these places to become really grotesque torture chambers. And so Charnel was desperately trying to sign up for the janitorial shift each day. And so in, in this way, Montgomery had actually created this sort of debt peonage prison where black women were doing all the city's uh, grotesque janitorial work because they owed debts they couldn't afford and had been jailed for it. I took a photograph of this 
documented by the time I photographed it, it had been, you know, smudged with all of her tears and, and I had really no idea what I was doing, but I knew this was horrific. And so I filed my first big federal civil rights lawsuit. And within a few weeks, you know, we got to this hearing in federal court and the federal judge was so outraged at what, you know, the story Charnel had told. And, and by that time, I had a number of other plaintiffs that I met in the jail before they actually kicked me out of the jail as well. He ordered all of the top city officials to come appear in federal court in person to explain how they could be doing something so illegal. And instead of doing that, they just released everybody from the jail. And imagine, you know, and this is, you know, the reason I opened the book with this story is imagine how desensitized a culture and a bureaucracy has to become that it can engage in something like child and family separation and human caging for no reason at all other than that the person owes money and for no good reason such that you can release everybody from your jail without a care in the world for public safety on a given day. And after we won Charnel's case and I read about the death of Michael Brown in Ferguson a couple months uh, later and I flew to Ferguson and and turned out many of the same things were happening in Ferguson. When I got to Ferguson, the city averaged 3.6 arrest warrants per household Almost all of these arrest warrants were for unpaid debt to the city, and almost all of them were for a black person. Um, that was that's 2.2 arrest warrants for every adult in Ferguson, and it turned out that Ferguson was running a massive debtors' prison scheme. So we 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 worked and embedded myself with people in the local community, and would be going from house to house and door to door, and and having these incredible family meetings with people where you know aunts and uncles and grandparents and mothers and daughters and sons and and family friends and neighbors and everyone had been jailed by the Ferguson police. Everyone had their own story of brutality and not being given soap or toothpaste or or hygiene products for weeks or months. It was was the same kinds of things. And then slowly over the years, we started bringing these cases all over the country, um, Tennessee and Texas and Louisiana and Mississippi and Oklahoma. And as we were having success doing this work, it became really clear that this basic concept, this legal principle no human being should be put in a cage because she can't make a payment, was actually the very core, not just of this rise of modern debtors' prisons, but of the American money bail system. And the money bail system is how this country determines in most places whether you're in jail before you're ever convicted of anything. You know, you're arrested and you're told if you pay us this money, um, you can go free to your family. And if you don't, you'll be put in a cage. And we have 3,162 local jails around the country where people are caged. Um, because they can't pay money. So we sort of redesigned our cases and worked really hard. And um, in 2015, brought the first, and I opened the book, you know, in the intro with, with a little story about Christy Don Varden, who became the first woman to mm-hmm. challenge the American money bail system on equal protection and due process grounds since the rise of mass incarceration. And then in the first 10 months of 2015, we brought 12 of these class action lawsuits challenging the money bail system in 12 different cities. And so you know, the short answer, to, I've been rambling for a while, but I'll just conclude my answer by saying, I wanted to write a book that captured the everyday brutality of, of these systems, but then I wanted to sound the alarm because after years and years of litigating against these systems and working with community organizers and directly impacted people and artists and musicians and, and others, I can, I can describe a little bit more later about our sort of multifaceted approach to challenging the narratives around these systems. Something really dangerous began to emerge. And that is that the very same people that created these systems, profited off of them, this everyday cruelty and brutality, they are now some of the leading quote-unquote reformers around the country. They are trying to trick people into passing certain, you know, quote-unquote criminal justice reforms um, that actually will not change any of the core architecture of this system of punishment and pain, but that will instead preserve the core elements of it and only reinforce and re-entrench their own power. And so I wanted to sound the alarm for anyone, person of good faith around the country who cares about racial justice, who cares about uh, human caging, who cares about child and family separation, and to say, here are the things you need to know so that when someone tells you that they're a reformer or that they have a way of fixing the system, you know exactly what you're talking about and can fight against many of the common things that powerful politicians and corporate interests are, are trying to tell you is actually a way of fixing the system. Well, and that's actually, you know, so I'm a, I'm a rhetorician by nature. And there's so many ways that different people might read this book because it's very rich. But of course, my first instinct is always to read for language. And one of the things I appreciate 
uh, is the way that you basically build, I think, a new vocabulary. So I thought you could talk about, and you've already said uh, several of them, which I'm sure the listeners already noticed, that your vocabulary sounds different than even what we call like a progressive vocabulary for people that are against this. So human caging, you also call it the money bail system instead of just bail. And then of course, punishment bureaucracy, which is a very big theme of the early piece. And then the difference, um, and then sort of the danger of reform. And you point specifically to Kamala Harris, which is significant, obviously, because she's now the vice president of the United States. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the relationship that you have with language, some of the ways that you talk about um, what's happening in the world so that you're not reinforcing and reinscribing some of these systems. And so I'm interested in that language component from my end, before I kick it over to Mary, I think to dig into some of the the legal structure. So do you want to talk a little bit about that before I give it over to Mary? Sure. It's such a vital point because the way we talk um, colors uh, and, and even determines how we understand and see the world. And it's no accident that much of the way in which all of us talk about the criminal punishment bureaucracy is designed to strip the human beings who are moving through that assembly line system of their humanity and to strip their loved ones of that humanity. And I think there's no better example than a police report. I mean, many of your of your listeners who are not lawyers or other people who work in the system may not have ever read a police report, but Police reports are designed to strip all background context from a particular situation and to focus only on a particular act. And they use the most dehumanizing language possible. It's really the exact opposite of what a poem is trying to do. A poem is trying to open us up to connect with another human being. A police report is the way a bureaucracy tries to strip all of the human elements of a certain situation. And so you're focusing on a very particular act with none of the understanding of how that act happened or what it meant to all of the people in it. And it's the only way that the bureaucracy can process millions and millions of people. Um, keep in mind, no society in the recorded history of the modern world has tried to process 11 million human beings into cages every single year. It's impossible to do it if you treat everyone as a human being. And so the system has a number of different ways of stripping people of their humanity. Um, and it happens not just with language, but in, but in the sort of the theater of the courtroom, the way that jails and prisons are constructed, many of the, the sort of architectural pieces of the courtroom, the fact that people are shackled within the courtrooms, often appearing behind glass boxes. Um, there's so many ways in which this is done, but I'll just focus on, on some of the language elements. Much of the way that we talk about the legal system is propaganda. So in the same way that, you know, the U.S. changed the name of the Department of War to the Department of Defense, when it became sort of untenable to think of yourself as sort of a imperialist colonial power, we needed to reframe a lot of the violence that the U.S. was doing around the world away from aggressive wars of expansion to increase our territory and uh, build our economy to uh, self-defense, right? still did a lot of the same things and in fact even expanded them, but it was now couched in the terms of defense, right? The same thing is happening with the legal system. You know, we have this thing called the Department of Justice. Well, the Department of Justice is the greatest force of race-based and poverty-based human caging in modern recorded world history. And its goal is to market this in sort of Orwellian terms as, as justice. The same is true with very basic terms that we all use every day. Like every media article says, you know, law enforcement says this and, and law enforcement says that. And we talk about the rule of law. Well, look, I mean, the, the myth of law enforcement is and the myth of the rule of law is that they want you to think that it's totally natural. A law is broken. It must be enforced. But in reality, the people who call themselves, you know, law enforcement officers, police and prosecutors, they only enforce some laws against some people, some of the time, in some places. And the whole first essay of the book is about understanding why terms like the rule of law are propaganda when, um, you know, drug laws are not enforced on the campus of Harvard or Yale. You know, we go to Harvard or Yale or, or Princeton, right, or, or many universities, rampant underage drinking, drug use, pervasive sexual assault, None of these laws are ever enforced on those campuses. Right down the street in predominantly black and brown neighborhoods, police are raiding people's homes every single day for the same kinds of criminal offenses. Um, this is a choice that is being very particularly about where to go and where to look for crime. 
you know, we think of when police, you know, law enforcement calls, you know, many poor neighborhoods, quote, high crime neighborhoods, right? But um, the instances of crime, if you're thinking of drug use, to tax evasion, to domestic violence, are actually higher in most rich neighborhoods, right? But we don't call them or think of them high crime. The same is true at the even earlier stage. So we all know that, you know, a fight in a low-income school is referred to police for prosecution of the kids, whereas a fight in a wealthy private school might get you called to the principal's office or have your parents come pick you up. These are choices that so-called law enforcement is making every single day. But at a prior step, even the definition of what is called a crime is completely socially constructed. And I give hundreds of examples in the first part of the book about how throughout history, our society has always decided what is a crime and what isn't a crime on the basis of who has power, whether it's a crime to join a union or a crime to refuse to join a union or a crime to have an abortion or um, whether it's a crime to wager on something, right? So gambling has been a crime in much of the US. It's still enforced, you know, poor black people who wager dice in the streets are often arrested and their property is seized from them. But wealthy white people who wager over the global price of wheat or international currency valuations are, are treated as philanthropists who own wing, you know, who donate that gambling, those gambling proceeds to create wings of hospitals. And, you know, in the 1990s, a bunch of very wealthy people took what was seen as illegal gambling. They gave a bunch of money to the Democrats and President Clinton. They legalized much of what is now thought of as, as derivatives trading. And they went from people who would have been criminals had they been doing the same thing to people who are now uh, making so much money off of this sort of derivatives trading that forms of which later crashed the global economy that they were able to then donate and put their names on hospitals and museums and universities. So I'm not making a normative claim right now. I just want people to understand that the what we call a crime, like it was a choice to criminalize opium in the late 19th century to give police another tool of combating and brutalizing Chinese immigrants. It was a choice when we criminalized marijuana because we wanted to give police more authority to criminalize Mexican Americans. It was a choice in the South to criminalize cocaine, which used to be legal because they wanted to give police more discretion to, to control black people. And it's a understood by elites and people in power at each one of those stages, opium, marijuana, cocaine, that white people and non-immigrants were using those substances in even greater rates, but they wouldn't have to be, they, they knew the police weren't going to enforce those laws against them. So I try to trace all of that in the book with, with many, many more examples from environmental law, from wage and hour. I mean, another great example is that employers steal more in wage theft from employees by conservative estimates, $50 billion a year to $100 billion a year. That is orders of magnitude more than all shoplifting, theft, burglary, car theft, larceny combined. All of the crimes that we use police for, so-called property crimes, they pale in comparison to wage theft. And yet no police and, and prosecutors around the country are even thinking about prosecuting employers for this crime of wage theft, even though it's a crime. Anyway, I'll just stop there and, 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 and say that we have to talk about these things with a language that is more honest about these systems aren't neutral. It's not a rule of, we're not living under a rule of law, right? That is in any way objective or neutral. Powerful people are making very particular decisions about who to target, what to criminalize, when to target them, and how brutal to be, how long to put them in a cage for, right? And these are all choices that are being made every single day. Uh, I do want to say I am so grateful to you for the, I can't even imagine the tremendous amount of labor required to put together so many examples to prove these points. Because one of the things you see in this book that's very different from you, what you see in like books from the far right that would argue very different is that you have many, many examples to make one claim and they often have one example to make one claim. So I always say that this is the example that proves the rule because it's because you can name the one instance where marijuana prosecution served a civic ethical good because you have one example of that, that's precisely how we know that's not what the system at large does. But in this case, for every claim you made about how the language is serving incredibly unjust ends under the false label of justice, you have example after example after example. And um, it's an incredibly persuasive and effective read. I am very excited for my students to read it in the fall. So I just want to thank you for all, for all that labor. And again, to everyone listening, it's the kind of book that is so dense in 
in research and in examples and in practical application that you really need to read it for yourselves. And all we can do here is give you a quick summary. So thank you again. And um, I'll stop fan being all over the book and pass it over to Mary because Mary has some questions um, more on, on the legal structural side of things that I think are really important to answer. Yes. Thank you. So when I read the prison bureaucracy, and I have to say, you know, I want to kind of join in the praise of of your use of language. And the prison bureaucracy, I think, is just the the most accurate way to describe, you know, what I was a part of, as even as a public defender. And it, it definitely uh, raises some issues about about power and control that don't get talked about about who profits off of incarceration. Um, so if you could talk a little bit just about uh, the amount of profit uh, that happens from this huge mass incarceration system. I think that's such an important question. And let me just first say, you know, you mentioned, you know, the system being broken. I think one of the things that I talk about in the book is that the system is only broken if you think that its goals are to create a wonderful society of equality and human flourishing. If you think that's its goal, then yes, it's horribly broken. But if you think that its goal is something else, maybe to um, control and surveil and brutally oppress certain segments of our population in order to preserve inequality, then in fact, it's functioning extremely well. And your theory for whether it's just this broken system where the people running it are just incompetent and they don't even realize that they're not accomplishing any of their goals or whether you think that there are interests that are actually profiting a great deal from the way the system looks now, that changes the way you have to fight it because it's a different theory for why it's doing what it's doing. You know, um, I think I think you're hitting on the fact, of course, I'm, I'm, an, I'm a lawyer. I went to law school and I have been uh, indoctrinated, you know, by the by the legal education and, and all of that. And, and you're right. So I think I do a spouse ideas of the legal system that aren't actually true um, and that you're uncovering here. So I appreciate that, you know, again, it's like you, you have a, you're very good at, at putting a mirror up and it's a very, very necessary mirror uh, to see, to see that. So yeah, you're right. The system, you know, when you really look at it, the system probably is working exactly how it's designed to work. Exactly. And you mentioned profit. I mean, let's look at that a little bit more closely. At every single turn in the system, there is someone powerful benefiting from how the system is operating. And it's been that way for a long time, right? Um, you know, take the, just walk through someone's arrest, right? There is corporations making the software that police are using to track people, the body cameras, the bulletproof vests, the handcuffs, the tasers, the guns, the police cars, right? The, 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 the multi-million dollar consultants now that, that police hire to help them do all this stuff, the, the facial recognition software, the, the voice recognition software, um, the cloud computing, like some of the biggest corporations in the world, like Amazon and Microsoft are now making a huge amount of money on local policing, right? Then once you're arrested, there is a uh, officers getting overtime to process you. There's the, the courts and the clerks and the defense lawyers and the prosecutors and the judges and the probation officer and the parole officer and the jail guards, right? And then there's the unions that represent all of them. All of this system feeds off every single person who spat into it is money, is salary, is, is something for these people to benefit off of. You all have heard of private prisons, right? Multi-billion dollar corporations that make money off of, of running um, human caging facilities. But what most people don't know is that the even the every single public jail in prison has been completely privatized inside. So private companies control the medical care, the food delivery, the laundry services. They control the telephone companies. The telephone contracts are a really great example. It used to be that you could go visit your loved ones if they were in jail. And keep in mind, most people in jail are only in jail because they can't afford to pay cash bail. And the United States and the Philippines are the only two countries in the world with a for-profit commercial money bail industry, right? So you're trapped in jail because we have this for-profit money bail industry that only exists in two countries. and you, 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 you know, the, the only thing that could, you know, connect you back with your family is, is visitation and seeing them and hugging them and, and, and maintaining that connection. Well, years ago, multi-billion dollar prison telecom companies decided there was much more money to be made if they stopped people from hugging their children and visiting in person and instead offered very expensive monopoly phone and video calling services. 
So they worked with local police and sheriffs to get rid of in-person visits for people and their children on the theory that people would be forced to spend much more money on phone calls and video calls. And so now you have these multi-billion dollar companies, the biggest of which is owned by the same person who parades around as a racial justice reformer and advocate, the owner of the Detroit Pistons, Tom Gores. He makes his fortune off of separating black and brown children from their families and then charging them exorbitant rates to call, having his company having eliminated in-person visiting in many of the jails they contract with. So I'm just giving a couple of examples. I could have given hundreds more. The entire system has people that are benefiting a great deal from it. Much of the local policing around the country, you look at the, the, the murder of Breonna Taylor, uh, for example, that happened because police were trying to clean out an area of the city um, for real estate developers. And if you track gentrification and real estate development in many major American cities, it actually, uh, in a very real way, helps determine patterns of policing. Where are powerful local politicians sending the cops? Well, they're sending them to places and in ways that actually um, further the economic interests of big real estate developers. There's many, many more examples, and there's you know much uh, scholarship written about this, so I don't need to go into it in, in a lot of detail here, but I just want to say at every single turn, from what we decide to make a crime to where we decide to look for those crimes to how we treat people once we're processing them in the system and, and the jails and prisons that we put them in, there are people making money off of it, and there are people whose way of life is dependent on perpetuating it. And that is why this bureaucracy is its natural law, like many bureaucracies, is to get bigger and bigger and bigger, to metastasize. Because that's what bureaucracies do, because there's so many people feeding off the bureaucracy who depend on it getting bigger and bigger to increase their own um, profit off of it, whether this is the police and the jail guard unions or it's the private prison telecom companies. The, the logic is the same. And so one of the crucial points of my book is that if you care about reforming these systems and you care about human beings and 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 the cruelty that, that we're visiting on, on people, predominantly black people, brown people, immigrants, poor people, you have to shrink the size and power of these systems. That is the first reform. And, and ironically, that is the reform they will fight you on the most. The best example of this is body cameras. After the murder of Michael Brown and after many of the, the you know, police brutality uh, examples that we've seen in recent years, you know, a lot of liberal reformers say, well, we need body cameras for the police. What they don't tell you is that body cameras was actually the police's idea. Police have wanted body cameras for many years. Why? Well, body cameras are a surveillance tool that they control. They create the policies. They turn them on and off. They're outward facing. They're not looking at what the cop is doing. They're looking at what the cop is seeing, right? Everybody in the police industry understands that these body cameras will only very rarely be used against police. In the vast majority of cases, they'll be used as evidence against poor people in court because the police control that evidence. But one thing the police, the police had a problem. They couldn't get the governments, local governments around the country, to give them the billions of dollars it would take to outfit every cop with a new surveillance camera. So what do they do? They use their own violence to partner with so-called reformers to convince well-meaning liberal people around the country to vote for their local governments to spend billions of dollars on these surveillance tools. The long-term goal was to link these body cameras with facial recognition software, with voice recognition software, and put it in the cloud to give police unprecedented access to uh, surveil the population and control them. And this was a coup that was done in the name of reform. Instead of asking questions like, why are the police in this neighborhood? Why do they have guns? Why are they enforcing drug laws in Breonna Taylor's neighborhood? Why do we have drug laws? Why is it that the United States is policing these poor neighborhoods in ways that no other country is doing? Instead of asking these fundamental questions, like even if you thought drug use was a serious problem and, and you, you, know, you were acting in good faith as a, as a local government, there's absolutely no evidence that caging people for using or selling drugs is a way to lower drugs. We've spent trillions of dollars and we've invaded foreign countries. We've spray bombed much of Latin America to kill foliage that, that could be used to, you know, area land mass that could be used to grow drugs. We have surveilled the entire global population. We have done hundreds of thousands of home raids. We've caged tens of millions of people. We've, we've separated millions of children from their families over 40 years. And the uses of drugs has gone up. The uses of dangerous drugs by children is higher. Overdose deaths are greater. So nobody who works in the system thinks that police, prisons, and jails are the way to reduce drug use, right? And yet, it is still the default response because 
all of the so-called reforms, whether it's in the drug space or the policing space, they all have been given more money and power to the police and to the carceral bureaucracy. So we need to take a step back. And that is what's so important fundamentally, intellectually, for, as an organizing perspective and principle about the defund movement. It is the first time in modern contemporary history that a movement has arisen around the core goal of divesting from this system of punishment and pain and, and taking those resources and investing them in human beings. I think that what the reforms look like, a lot depends on who's making the reforms. And, you know, when you see who's suddenly putting themselves out as reformers, a lot of the times it's former prosecutors, you know, people that are deeply entrenched with with mass incarceration. I, I thought your focus on Preet Bharara in the book was was really interesting, and that's really kind of important. Important piece is like who who is getting promoted out there as being the reformers? Who's allowed to have that, and what is their platform access? Have you found that you can get this message out there? This contrary because there's it's it's very different than than what these other people are promoting. Yeah, it's very different and, and it's very scary to them because, you know, for many, many years, they've been using the, the under the guise of so-called reform, they've actually been building the, the prison industrial complex. And, you know, you take someone like Barara, devoted his entire career to a level of mass human caging that would be absolutely abhorrent at any time in U.S. history up until 1980, and that would be shocking to anyone in any other country of the world. Right. And yet he's seen as some kind of liberal resistance hero because he tweets a little bit about Trump. But this is a man who repeatedly, uh, intentionally abused poor people with his prosecutions in New York, ignored obvious criminality by his own staff, by the NYPD. He repeatedly declined to prosecute a grotesque and brutal federal felony offenses committed by NYPD on his watch. I mean, the man has a horrific record and most people just don't know that. They don't understand the role he played in child and family separation. And, he, and during the Trump years, he became some kind of you know, liberal reform hero. Very similar things can be said of Kamala Harris, who-, who Can, I, who can really, I jump in for just a second? Yeah. I don't know that everyone listening will know who Barrara is. So like, obviously context now they will, but can you just give a brief two sentence bio just so people don't feel left out of the loop and then move on to Harris? Yeah. Barrara is a, you know, is, is an emerging celebrity in the legal community. He, he has a you know, popular podcast. He, he formerly was the United States attorney, which is the chief federal prosecutor for the Southern District of New York in Manhattan. And he, you know, uh, runs an institute and does all kinds of fancy things, you know, focusing on what he calls the rule of law, right? And Barrara has made discreet choices throughout his entire career to only enforce some laws against some people, right? And it's mm. stuff that benefits his own personal powerful ambitions. And it's stuff that benefits wealthy people, um, and that crushes poor people and black people and people of color in the New York area. And so, you know, Kamala Harris is another good example. She was a district attorney in, in San Francisco and she used cash bail to crush people for, I mean, I give lots of examples about Kamala Harris in the book, but, um, for many, many years, she jailed people just because they couldn't pay cash bail, separated from their families in order to coerce guilty pleas from them and extracted tens of millions of dollars in wealth from the black community and the poor communities in San Francisco and gave it to the commercial bail bond industry through her policies. And she is now parading around the country during the campaign as some kind of a bail reformer. And the reforms that she was pushing would actually make the bail system worse. And this is something we're seeing all over the country. Many of the Democrats around the country who are calling themselves bail reformers are actually promoting a system that would increase the number of poor people in jail. And we saw this um, with the first wave of bail reform in the 1980s in this country. A lot of liberal elites from the 60s and 70s, actually led originally by Bobby Kennedy, um, whose legacy on this later got completely corrupted um, by the people that followed him, to change the money bail system. They culminated in Bail Reform Act of 1984. And when they passed that act, about 24% of all people charged with federal crimes were detained because they couldn't pay cash bail. So it was a big problem. But today, 37 years after that act, pretrial detention of poor people has tripled in federal courts. 72.4% of people who are presumed innocent are detained prior to trial without bail. So 
you know, the problem was all these poor people were being jailed because they couldn't pay bail. What was the liberal reform? Just to start jailing them without bail, right? That's what these bureaucracies do because they want to maintain their power and control over people. And this is the key. Everyone who works in the system, from Barrara to Kamala Harris to Eric Holder, who actually famously um, pioneered the use of the pretextual traffic stops so people at least could pull over Black people because they were Black, but as long as they had a, some kind of traffic violation, it was okay, right? From each of these people understood as prosecutors that the system could not possibly give everyone a defense lawyer or have a jury trial for arresting these millions and millions of people. So what did they need to do? They needed to find a way to con- to coerce the vast majority of people to plead guilty. What was the way to do that? It was to throw them in jail, even though they were presumed innocent prior to trial, take them away from their families, have them unable to participate in their defense, make them desperate, put them in places where they're likely to get sexually and physically assaulted, where they're getting horrific food, where they're deprived of sunlight and fresh air, toothpaste, soap. I do a lot of work in Houston and it's beautiful, you know, jail building from the outside and all the windows are fake because it's more important for people on, on downtown Houston to look out on this nice jail building than it is for people inside to have sunlight. Preeper, oh my God. Harris, Eric Holder, they all know this. And that's why their bail reforms are actually designed to increase the number of people in jail because everybody knows the whole system would crumble if you couldn't coerce people into pleading guilty. And this is the danger that we face when we listen to these liberal reformers because make no mistake, they have all spent their entire careers building this punishment bureaucracy they're not about to dismantle it. So in a nutshell, if we're looking for whether a reform is a good reform, whether a reformer is a true reformer, you know, follow the money and see, are they willing to divert that from the criminal justice system to, you know, other social services? Is that is that kind of your position in a nutshell? Yeah, that's one of the most important things is, you know, you ask yourself, does this reform take away money and power from police, prosecutors, judges, prisons, jails, and courts? And does it transfer that money and power to ordinary poor people and community? And if it doesn't do that, it's not much of a reform. And and so we need to dramatically shift the ways in which elites have access to this carceral bureaucracy um, if we if we actually care about not only individual liberty, but also human flourishing and racial and economic justice. And so I think that's a key, I give some other examples in the book of other things you should be looking for, but a very, very key principle is, is this shrinking the size of the bureaucracy or not? So and the, the second essay you write in the book is, is called The Human Lawyer. And I'm grateful to this essay because I think it calls out the inhumanity of most lawyers, which I think needs to be said. But I'm curious as to who you intended the audience for this essay to be. When I wrote that essay, actually, it was, it was, you know, back when I was a third year law student, I started it and published it, an earlier version of it shortly after I graduated law school over 10 years ago. And so at the time, I was really trying to process for myself what it was like being a student and a young person just learning about the horrific injustices of the punishment bureaucracy. And at the same time, being thrown in like a legal educational environment that was really designed to kind of whitewash the ugly parts of our legal system and to obscure the fact that for several hundred years, the American court system has consistently been on the wrong side of every major legal issue, whether it was slavery and and decisions that allowed human beings to own other human beings, or whether it was supporting and upholding and, and accelerating the theft of indigenous land and massacre of indigenous people, or whether it was denying women basic rights, whether it was horrific discrimination against the LGBTQ community, whatever it is, you know, the the courts have always been on the wrong side of these issues. And they've only ever um, followed massive social movements that demanded that the courts change. The courts are an agent of preservation of status quo power. And it was really hard as a student to sort of process that in, in that environment. And so what I was trying to do was to say, there's something deeply inconsistent with these basic values that we're taught are at the core of our legal system that are inscribed on our marble monuments and in our constitutional scrolls, like liberty, equality, freedom, and the way that our legal system has always operated. And 
we need to call that out as lawyers and we need to bring the best parts of our own thinking as human beings into our careers as lawyers. We know as human beings what's right and wrong. And too often in the law, we ignore that. And then it was also trying to say that there are some interesting things about the law and there are some, you know, it's formal commitment to certain concepts like rigorous evaluation of evidence. We could actually benefit from from that in our own personal lives. And so part of the essay is about taking some of the best things that you might learn in a legal education and applying them to our own personal lives. The audience was really young people and students at the time. But I think, you know, in retrospect, looking at it, I think the essay could work for, for anyone working in the legal system or tangentially related to it, or, or even anyone working in a bureaucracy like the legal system, where there's an enormous pressure to conform to systemic injustices, and you're looking for a way of, of fortifying your own mind and, and building the strength and energy with other people to, to, to fight against it. I agree. I think there is a huge pressure to conform. And also, in the third part of the book, you really call out lawyers and judges and make and say that they could do quite a bit more than they do. And that I really think is is very interesting. And you I think you made two main points, you know, about how lawyers fail. And so I would love you to uh, discuss those two points, particularly, you know, their intellectual, fa- the, the intellectual failure of the profession to scrutinize their own role in, in all of this uh, mass caging and the prison bureaucracy. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the central things that hits anyone who works in the legal system is that we actually have not a single shred of evidence that all of this human caging does any good. I mentioned before, we have done an unprecedented in world history amount of human caging for drugs, and yet the usage rates of dangerous drugs has gone up, as have overdose deaths, as has drug use in many areas. And there is not a single iota of evidence that if you see a social problem, the way to fix that social problem is to cage individual human beings and to stigmatize them and treat them as bad people if they engage in it. The same is true of so-called violent crime. There is not a single shred of evidence that the way to a society with less gender-based violence is through human caging of individual people who commit acts of gender-based violence. It's, in fact, there's tremendous evidence that deeper structural problems like toxic masculinity, like poverty, like lack of human connection, deep alienation, depression, mental illness, or the things that actually cause people to hurt other people. And, and lawyers um, have completely, and judges have completely ignored this evidence. And not only that, but they've ignored the enormous costs of human caging. You know, it's just, if you read court opinions and you look at legal arguments, you almost never see judges and lawyers talking about sexual assault in jails and prisons, family separation. What are the costs of taking a child's parent away for seven years during the child's formative years? What are the costs to to a society of putting people tens of thousands at a time in solitary confinement for years and then releasing them back into the community? What are the enormous physical, environmental, mental health, medical costs of the way we do this prison industry? And it's astonishing to me that for people that claim to be well-meaning and intellectual and people who prize evidence, that they have done absolutely no work to assess either the benefits or the costs of mass incarceration. And that is a profound failure of the legal profession. I, I did my, my law review article on sexual assault in prison, and uh, it was rejected for being too provocative. So I, I think there's definitely desire to, to not focus on things that are, that are unpleasant amongst lawyers. They don't want to look at it. It's too challenging. I'm just curious, are you familiar with with drug courts? Yes. So drug courts are another example of uh, increase in the bureaucracy, right? Um, They're very profitable for the system because they involve hiring a bunch of new people. They involve the police love them because it it expands the role the police play. Uh, Prosecutors love them because it's all about arresting more and more people and prosecuting more and more people because you now have this other place to put them in drug courts. 
And many of the drug courts are staffed and run by for-profit companies that get, get paid for all the drug tests that are done. And nobody thinks that the way to lower drug use is by arresting people and forcing them under the pain of going to jail or prison to go to drug court. Uh, it's, it's a type of reform that doesn't involve decriminalizing drugs and treating drugs as a public health issue. It's, it's, it's based on this sort of false understanding that the way you fix these problems is by increasing the size of a punishment system. I just don't think you can meaningfully address a problem like drug use, which is so linked to mental illness and poverty and alienation and trauma without addressing the things about our society that lead to those problems. Well, and drug courts are, they're a post, uh, they're a post plea court. So that you have to take, you have to plead guilty in order to get into drug court typically. And then if you successfully complete it, according to them, you could withdraw that plea and plead to something lower. But all the way through there, you know, there's incarceration punishments for relapse and, you know, normal, typical things that happen with drug addiction. And I found it very frustrating. I thought they treated the participants like young children. It was really bizarre the way they were talked to the the punishment structure before, prior, prior to incarceration you know they would the assignments given it was very childlike which i thought was really rude and and what does this have anything to do with with getting people off of drugs and also it's almost impossible to get real statistics as to whether they're effective or not again all of this is being put out there as is this is the legal system tackling drug abuse and it, I thought they were almost totally ineffective and it's difficult to get you know some real critical evaluation you're supposed to be for this you know this is another good option you know, this is the courts trying but are they really trying exactly their goal is not to reduce drug use their goal is to convince well-meaning people that the system is trying to reduce drug use and to trick them into thinking that because their real goal is to preserve as much as possible this profitable bureaucracy. And so the types of reforms that this bureaucracy will come up with are all reforms that increase the resources and money and power going to it. And they, they don't want to end drug use if it means shrinking the size of the policing and punishment bureaucracy. And so that's why they keep proposing these reforms that do absolutely nothing to solve the problem. Well, I appreciate all of your work on bail reform, I think, and ending cash bail up in New York. They had legislative bail reform. It wasn't, it didn't eliminate cash bail, but it took the power away from judges on certain crimes that they're just not allowed to set cash bail anymore. And it really reduced their abilities after findings that they had been abusing their discretion for decades. There was a terrible backlash, the the police unions and you know, all the police were saying what now, what a cesspool everything was going to be, and all these criminals were going to be running the streets. Meanwhile, rich people always get out, and they always have. They've always been able to make cash bail, regardless of their charge. This has had a huge impact on the defense bar, on defendants. And I think that we'll see in the future, you know, whether that has a ripple effect on pleas. On, on trials and how the court system is going to navigate that. Totally. Um, I think that stuff is very important. And one of the best things about the New York reforms, which obviously could and should have been stronger, but one of the things that made them the best you know, reforms that anyone has done yet is that it reduced the power and discretion of police and prosecutors. It says you cannot jail people pre-trial pre, pre in large categories of cases. What I thought was interesting about the backlash is that it hit on dangerousness and it and it made this public uh fear-mongering campaign about how, you know, judges weren't going to be able to take dangerousness into consideration. And they had never been able to take dangerousness into consideration, but they always had. And even as a even as like a, a line defense attorney, you know, that wasn't we, it was something that we knew they did, but it wasn't drilled into me that that was illegal for them to do it. They had been doing it for 70 years, even though they weren't supposed to. Well, so and just to close you. the loop on this, I mean, and consider what you've just said. You've just said something that everybody who works in the system knows, which is that judges in this area have been violating the law for many, many decades. Well, think about what that means for the, these people who talk about the rule of law. 
everyone understands that one of the foundational features of our legal system is that police, prosecutors, and judges hardly ever follow certain laws, including very important provisions of the Constitution. So we know, for example, the vast majority of police stops in many different cities where there's actually been uh, DOJ and other sort of systemic investigations are illegal. They lack probable cause or reasonable suspicion, depending on the, on the search or the stop. And we know that judges all over the country have been jailing people illegally just because they can't pay cash bail. We know that judges have been considering dangerousness, even though they're not allowed to in New York, right? There's, you know, I could give hundreds of examples. Again, they don't care about the rule of law when the rule of law is designed to protect poor people and powerless people. They only enforce some laws some of the time against some people. And that's just such an important thing for people to internalize. Like the powerful people that run our legal system actually don't believe at all in any kind of rule of law. They only believe in enforcing some laws when it when it serves their interests. Yeah, that reminds me about the point you made in, in, in your book about uh, you quoted, I think, uh, how much money is stolen really in tax evasion uh, that the IRS estimated. I think it was like a trillion per year. They want to focus on on like Medicaid fraud or welfare fraud or food stamp fraud, you know, which is nothing compared to the vast amounts of theft that is going on from the richest Americans. For everybody to internalize that and then when you hear arguments against poor people and minorities, you have to you have to say to yourself, hey, there's actually all of this other crime that's going on that's way bigger that we're not focusing on. So we need to focus on that. And then before we ever get to this tiny crime that really has a very small impact on society. So I think that's a huge point that I internalized from the book and that I hope everybody else does as well. I, I am so glad that you took that point from the book and also grateful that, that you know, we're having this discussion and I think it's, it's, it's a very important thing for people to try to grapple with. And I tried in the book to give as many examples as I could so that um, there's something for everyone. Something will, will resonate with you no matter what area you work in, um, no matter what your experiences are, so that you can actually see that over the sort of the wide range of things that our legal system does, um, these are certain patterns that it follows in every single area. And, and, and that was really one of the goals that I, I wanted to try to capture in the book. One of the things I'm most excited about is we were able to raise a fund for, at the nonprofit books uh, publisher to get free copies for students. So if you're a teacher, high school, college, law school, uh, graduate school, you can get free copies for all of your students uh, of the book. And for every copy that we get to students, we have a matching copy going to someone in prison. And so we have the ability to send thousands of copies of these books out to students and people on the inside um, to try to get these ideas out there. And it'd be really great, you know, reach out to me through Twitter um, or email um, alec at civilrightscore.org. And if you know a teacher or if you are a teacher or a professor and you want to get free copies for, for folks, um, or if you run a program that sends books to people inside prisons, and it's something that we're really, really grateful for. And, and if you buy a copy of the book, um, all of the royalties of the book go to an amazing organization called the SE Justice Group. It's E-S-S-I-E. It's an organization that organizes women with incarcerated loved ones. So none of the royalties go to me. Um, all of the royalties go to the SE Justice Group, which is an incredible organization that is building a loving and powerful community of women who are challenging and trying to dismantle this system. That is wonderful. Uh, I think that's everybody. I encourage everybody, please go out and support this book and support this cause. Thank you so much, Alec, for your time, and I hope you have a great day. Thank you both so much. It's a real pleasure. Thank you. I encourage you to follow Alec on Twitter at EqualityAlec. He monitors crime reporting and jail conditions around the country, and he writes these incredibly informative Twitter threads that will keep you up to speed. You can always find this podcast on Twitter at CourtPod or drop an email at mayitdispleasethecourt at gmail.com. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at mayitdispleasethecourt. We would love you to rate and review the show as it helps others find the program. Theme music is Poor Man's Pain by Daniel Ponder, a former public defender who left to pursue music full-time. This song is about Willie Simmons, a black man sentenced to life in prison in 1992 for stealing $9.
Check out the show notes to learn more. Oh